Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today's Thursday, February 25th. GameStop stock is up, weekly unemployment claims are down, and we're talking robots. Yesterday, a Massachusetts company called Berkshire Gray agreed to be acquired by a SPAC, one of those blank check acquisition companies that have become all the rage on Wall Street. But Berkshire Gray is way more interesting than any SPAC, and not just because it's going to be valued at nearly $3 billion when its shares become publicly traded. Berkshire Gray makes robots and systems for e-commerce warehouses. Some of them look a little bit like those storage bins at airport TSA checkpoints, except they move around on their own, flying up and down aisles of the warehouse, picking, packing, and sorting millions of different items from retailers like Target and Walmart so they can get shipped to your front step. In short, it's trying to help everyone who isn't Amazon compete with Amazon, which about a decade ago bought another Massachusetts warehouse robotics company called Kiva Systems. In fact, Berkshire Gray's leadership includes former execs from both Kiva and Roomba maker iRobot. Why it matters is that e-commerce usage has exploded during the pandemic, but at the same time, there are growing concerns about what automation means for America's lower-skilled workforce, a lot of whom work in warehouses. So today we wanted to speak with John Delaney. You might remember him as the former Maryland congressman who ran for the Democratic presidential nomination. But he's also a veteran businessman who leads the SPAC buying Berkshire Gray in partnership with Revolution, the venture capital firm led by AOL founder Steve Case. John, let's start here. Your SPAC kind of had a, a relatively broad mandate within the tech space. Were you specifically looking for something in automation and kind of as a piece of that, how do you settle on Berkshire Gray? When Steve Case and I started our SPAC, we had a very defined investment thesis, which was to focus on a company that was benefiting from the acceleration of certain trends in our economy. In other words, things that we know were knew were happening and would take you know, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years to play out. They were observable. But they've been brought forward based on the pandemic or other breakthroughs in innovation. So that's what we were really looking for. And that's why Berkshire Gray was such a perfect fit, because in many ways, what is benefiting Berkshire Gray at this moment in time in particular is this acceleration of our transition to the digital economy. We all knew... We were transitioning to the digital economy. I think it had taken like, you know, since 2000 to today or pre-pandemic, 11% of retail sales had moved online. So it took, you know, 20 years to go from zero to 11. And then in, during the pandemic, that almost doubled. So that's what we were looking for, a company that was benefiting from that acceleration and was well positioned. And Berkshire Gray, which effectively allows or we think is essential for the supply chain to automate, to handle the volume in e-commerce, it fit a macro thesis as opposed to us being focused specifically on automation. What specifically is it about, for you, about Berkshire Gray's technology? Because obviously there are other e-commerce warehouse robotics companies out there. Two things. We think their, their individual component technologies are best in class, meaning they have pickers, they have mobile robots, they have sorting robots, they have software that orchestrates it all. And we also believe from our discussions with their customers that there's no other company that is selling an integrated solution. So in other words, what the clients are hearing from most robotics companies is, oh, we have this great robotics product. Here it is. 
Here are the instructions, if you will. And what the clients want is someone to come in, look at the warehouse, the fulfillment, the supply chain, and provide an integrated solution, which involves multiple robots interconnected through artificial intelligence and software working together in almost like an orchestration. And that's what we think is singular about Berkshire Gray. They're the only company that provides that integrated solution. When you talk about their customers, namely, I assume retailers, is there a sense among retailers that they basically almost need to band together with a common logistics warehouse automation solution, basically to compete with Amazon, which obviously does have massive warehouses and, and years ago bought Kiva, which is their kind of in-house robotic system? Absolutely, Dan, you nailed it. There's this Amazon effect out there, right? Amazon almost 10 years ago bought Kiva, we think has invested tens of billions of dollars and is way ahead of everyone else. That was a problem to begin with. Then you have COVID, which massively accelerates e-commerce, which is another problem. So we believe that Berkshire Gray's customers are really running towards their solutions to be competitive with Amazon. You know, as one of their clients told me in, a, in an interview I had with them or in a customer call I had with them, they said, we see a world in the future where consumers want 100,000 SKUs, meaning 100,000 items, delivered same day. That's the future we're working towards. And to achieve that future, we have to not only take the facilities we have and automate them, but we have to invest massively in new facilities, both very big ones, right, and also very small ones that are in communities that handle that whole supply chain. And we're going to automate all those facilities. And they need to do that to compete with Amazon. And that is, in essence, what Berkshire Gray does. John, uh, you obviously had a business career before you went to politics, but then served in Congress, ran for president. Let me ask about that political piece vis-a-vis -vis this. When a lot of people hear automation, particularly warehouse automation, which is where a lot of retail jobs have gone, is Berkshire Gray and, and what you're doing helping grow them, is that ultimately a job destroyer? And if not, why not? We don't believe it is. All the clients that Berkshire Gray sells to are adding jobs at rapid rates. So this is very different than automation trends that have happened in the past, like in the manufacturing sector, where robots came in and effectively took good middle-class, middle-skilled jobs that people want and that their parents used to have maybe and automated them away. But isn't this taking the lower skill, lower paid jobs? No, because the companies can't find workers. Their growth in e-commerce is so spectacular that they can't even begin to find the workers. These are the hardest jobs for them to fill. In most situations, they have to effectively promise people, do this job for three to six months, and then we'll move you up. So what we think Berkshire Gray is doing is massive growth. All their clients are hiring at rapid rates. And what these technologies allow to happen is the jobs that people don't really want to do are increasingly getting automated, which creates an opportunity for people to be effectively upskilled and get more middle-skilled, middle-class jobs, maintaining these systems, you know, updating these systems, dealing with logistics, et cetera, more skilled jobs than these positions. Can I just push you on that for a quick second? I'm curious because it seems that, you know, if a physical retailer either closes or shrinks its footprint, et cetera, those are often the people who in theory would go to warehouse jobs. Although, as you say, they're sometimes hard to fill. It's not because people aren't looking for work. It's because it's pretty backbreaking work. So I just mean kind of from a macro economy standpoint, if you lose your retail shop floor job because it's gone, you don't want to do the warehouse job because it's God awful. Those people are going to fall through the cracks, aren't they? Well, listen, there's a role for public policy to work with the private sector 
in ensuring people have, A, the training they need to get the jobs that are being created, right? Because as we all know, innovation creates more jobs than it displaces, but you need certain skills for those jobs. So there's a role for public policy to do that. There's also a role for public policy to invest in things like infrastructure, et cetera, which we have massive shortages of and are extraordinary job creators. I mean, that in some ways is a whole other discussion. But as it relates to this specific situation, again, you know, you, you have a company like Berkshire Gray selling to clients who are adding jobs massively, are not letting people go at all, and are having a hard time filling jobs. So in some ways, these systems come in and automate parts of the supply chain and allow these companies where are having a hard time getting people to begin with to bring in those people and invest in training to give them jobs that are that are more well suited for what they're looking for from their for their personal careers and and jobs is how I think about it. John, before we run out of time with you, one final question, which is a, a, a broader SPAC question. Uh, I assume you saw earlier in the week uh, there was a big deal that got done in the uh, electric vehicle space, something called Lucid Motors, the largest SPAC deal ever. And the market response to that was basically to drive down the price of almost every SPAC across the board as if to say, wait a minute, this has gotten a little bit silly. Do you believe, broadly speaking, I'm not talking about revolution specifically, do you believe there is a bit of a speculative valuation bubble in SPACs? No, I think what's going on with SPACs is SPAC is a new innovation. I mean, I, I took two companies public, right? The traditional IPO route. And, you know, so I, I firsthand saw the limitations of that process and how time consuming it was, how burdensome it was, et cetera. I view SPACs as being a very positive market innovation because what they allow to have happen is more companies will access the public markets as opposed to going, you know, that last round of private capital or perhaps getting sold. That is ultimately very positive for our economy. The data is overwhelmingly clear that public companies disproportionately create jobs as opposed to companies owned by private investment firms. We've seen a decrease in the number of public companies over the last several decades, a consistent and persistent decrease. This is going to start reversing that. Secondly, I think it does democratize capital because it allows particularly companies that maybe would have done one more round of private finance pre-IPO, which is an attractive risk return opportunity for investors. Those opportunities were kind of left to private investors, which tend to be high net worth individuals and large funds. Now that's available to the public. And people always have to be careful, right? And people should always have a portfolio theory and people should always be diversified. Those enduring principles of investing really shouldn't be different today. And I would always tell an investor, never make a concentrated bet on one company because there's risk in any one company. But in general, I think what's happening right now will ultimately be very positive for the US economy and be positive for investors. That doesn't mean there's not gonna be cycles, there always are, but investors should be prudent. John Delaney, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase, which just detailed plans to go public. The top line is this will be structured as a direct listing, not an IPO, which means that the shares being offered are gonna come from venture capitalists and Coinbase employees, not from the company itself. But for retail investors, it doesn't matter. They'll be able to buy. Why this really matters though, isn't the detail and the structure. It's that this is coming in the midst of a massive crypto boom, and Coinbase may go public at a higher valuation than any other U.S. tech company since Facebook. Plus, Coinbase is profitable, which makes it a rarity among unicorns 
And this listing could further legitimize the crypto industry by bringing in new, large institutional investors. For context, about 70% of Coinbase's transaction volume is Bitcoin, whose price is up 76% year to date and a whopping 1,174% from this date in 2020. Oh, and finally, speaking of this date in 2020, that's when Larry Kudlow, then the top White House economic advisor, said this to CNBC about COVID-19. We have contained this. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. Kudlow obviously is no longer in the White House. Instead, he hosts his own TV show on the Fox Business Network. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven. Have a great National Clam Chowder Day, which we will assume is the white kind, not the red kind, because we don't recognize the red kind as being real clam chowder. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.